All right. Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. <laughs> Anybody know what year Mother's Day started? Uh, 1908. It was 1908 by Anna Jarvis who held a memorial for her mom at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. She wanted a day to honor mothers because a mother is who gives you more than anyone else in the world. And uh, that year, Congress rejected a proposal to make Mother's Day an official holiday, joking that they would also have to make a mother-in-law's day. And uh, so Anna Jarvis was persistent. 1911, all states observed the holiday, but she was later resentful of the commercialization of Mother's Day and on one of her protests was arrested for disturbing the peace. So as Christians, it's good for us to remember Mother's Day. Uh, being a mom is a, is a great gift from God. It is uh, one of the greatest gifts and one of the greatest challenges. And, uh, and also Mother's Day, like many other holidays, uh, can be a day that evokes different emotions in different people. For some, it's a day that evokes lots of joy and others sorrow because there are different circumstances that we've all experienced. Um, and so we want to lift all of these things up to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a Mother's Day prayer. So if you'd please bow your heads with me. Uh, we'll lift this up to the Lord. Father God, we uh, lift your name up as the author of life and the lover of our souls. Uh, in you we live and move and have our being. Uh, in you there is no lack. And so we stand amazed at your greatness, your mercy, your love. God, today is Mother's Day, and on this day we thank you for our own mothers, for their sacrifice on our behalf, childbirth, is an amazing thing, and none of us entered the world in any other way. So we thank you for this miracle and blessing. We also remember Mary, the mother of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was humble, courageous, and loving. She listened to your promises and then replied, May it be with me as you have said. Let all of us learn from her example. Uh, for the women in this congregation, we ask your blessing. Bless the future mothers, uh, the expectant mothers of our congregation. Uh, strengthen those with little ones. Give wisdom to moms whose children have, are growing up, uh, to those who have more complicated needs. Uh, we pray for your love and compassion upon those who have not been able to conceive, for those who have children who have significant challenges, for those who have children who passed away. Uh, we know that all these things are in your hands, and we trust you with our circumstances. Uh, thank you, God, also for spiritual moms, those who have invested spiritually in the lives of others. Uh, we pray that you would increase their joy and bless their work. Now, God, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to you, that you would speak to us through your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are in the uh, third Sunday of our series called King, uh, Kings and Kingdoms. It's based on the books of First and Second Kings. Um, the purpose of this series is that we might gain a broad perspective and understanding of the Old Testament books, Old Testament historical books, and also that we might appreciate how that relates to our Christian faith. So that's where we've been going. And we want to remember where we've been, been in this series. Uh, we've had a couple Sundays already. A couple weeks ago, we uh, talked about David, who was both the prototype and the standard by which all the other kings were judged. The promises to David were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, David's greatest son. Um, as we 
read through First and Second Kings, we continually see summary statements about how the various kings were compared to David. And as we read the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus uh, is called uh, the son of David. And then last week, we talked about David's son, Solomon, uh, who was known for his wisdom, wealth, and wives. Uh, Solomon's greatest achievement was building the temple. He was known for his wisdom, but in his old age, Solomon turned from the Lord, and he ultimately failed the David test because he moved further and further away from God. His heart became increasingly idolatrous. Uh, so the wisest of kings became a fool because his heart was divided. Now, uh, Solomon's idolatry actually erased much of his legacy, what would have otherwise been his legacy. And uh, so we finished last week with the conclusion that Solomon's divided heart resulted in a divided kingdom. Solomon's divided heart resulted in a divided kingdom. Well, this morning we are continuing on to 1 Kings chapter 12. That's our main text for this morning, uh, where we are going to learn how the kingdom uh, became divided into the north and south. So we'll hear the names Israel and Judah. Israel will be the northern tribes. Judah will be the southern tribes. Um, and we also want to connect the dots between um, the divided kingdom and our Christian faith. And so in your bulletins, there is a, if you take your bulletins out, there's a page for sermon notes. And I want to encourage you to find that blank page and the right of the, uh, the top of that page, write divided kingdom. Um, and if we can move to that slide there, uh, then draw a grid like the one that you'll see on the screen here. So divided heart equals a divided kingdom. And then on the top where you see it says Israel and me, write, write those down. And on the left-hand side, one on top of the other, write causes, circumstances, and consequences. Draw a grid. Leave lots of space because those six boxes you see there are for your notes. Uh, things that you might want to write down, things that come to your mind either based upon the scripture that we're reading, the things we're talking about, or possibly uh, from your own life, things that could, um, that could be helpful uh, moving forward here. So we'll, uh, we'll put that grid together. And uh, here's the purpose of the grid. Solomon's divided heart resulted in a divided kingdom. Uh, we have the same problem. When our heart is divided, so is God's kingdom in our lives. If our heart is divided, God's kingdom in our lives is also divided. The more divided our hearts become, the more we depart from the path of wisdom. So as we're examining the divided kingdom this morning, it's great to just write some things down and, and take it to heart. So what can we learn from the divided kingdom? What led up to it? How did it start? What were the consequences? Um, we'll be kind of following the trail down that left side of the grid there, causes, circumstances, and consequences. Causes, circumstances, and consequences. Um, so um, when we come to the causes of the divided kingdom, it reminds me of a story of, of when, uh, when I was uh, in high school, I would go out uh, pretty regularly with some friends to an old cottonwood tree. It was a, a really huge tree. And, uh, and on that tree, way up in the branches, was a rope. And you could climb the hill take that rope and hang on to it for your dear life, and then it would eventually go out over the lake and uh, put you quite a, way, quite a distance into the lake, 
and then it, you would drop off. You didn't want to swing back and hit the rocks. You had to drop off. And, uh, and so we would do that whenever the weather was good, uh, during the summer usually, and, and uh, we'd go back year after year and go to this old cottonwood tree and swing off the, the tree, and, and it was a lot of fun. And we never worried about the integrity of the tree because it was huge. Our weight was insignificant compared to the size of the tree itself. On a day like many others, my friends and I uh, would, were swinging off that tree. We, we went swimming, we, we dried off, we, we left. And then the very next day, going by that tree, and that gigantic, enormous tree had fallen over in the water, the very same tree that we were swinging off the day before. And as I was looking at it, I realized the roots on that tree were rotten. The tree looked healthy. It looked like it had good integrity of trunk. And, and it looked like, I mean, our weight was so insignificant that even though the roots were rotting, we were able to swing into it, uh, swing into the lake the day before. But if we'd known that tree was rotting, we would have never dared swing off of its branches into the water. Well, during Solomon's reign, the Israelites were sort of like my friends and I swinging off that tree. Just as the tree supporting us seemed solid, there was prosperity in the kingdom of Israel. The king was revered. Uh, there was peace. People had plenty of food to eat. To all appearances, the kingdom seemed healthy and strong. The tree of Israel seemed very strong. Uh, during Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel grew. It consolidated. The promises that God gave to David were passed on to Solomon. Uh, the the uh, kingdom was larger, it looked stronger than ever, but a careful inspection would reveal that there was rot at its roots. So Solomon failed to follow God's instruction in Scripture, and this is where the rot began. Uh, centuries before Solomon, God had instructed people through Moses on how, they ought to, how a king ought to conduct himself. Uh, so among the stipulations where the king ought not uh, be consumed with physical possessions, and he shouldn't multiply horses, gold, or wives, specifically addressing the issue of not multiplying wives. Deuteronomy 17.17 17 reads, the king must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. And that is exactly what Solomon did. So we're going to take a look at 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3 together. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. I get tired just reading them all. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter marriage with them, neither shall they be with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wife turned away his heart. So when it comes to causes of the divided kingdom, clearly one of the central causes of the divided kingdom were Solomon's many wives. And polygamy is not a good idea. God's design for marriage in Genesis 2 is one man, one woman, an exclusive relationship. But polygamy, believe it or not, is not the central issue here. The central issue is idolatry. Polygamy is what led to idolatry in this case. Probably few of us are in danger of polygamy, but all of us are at risk of idolatry. Um, so the women that 
Solomon married worshipped other gods. Imagine what 700 princesses who worshipped other gods would do for the spiritual state of Israel. It couldn't be good. And so they led Solomon's heart astray and ultimately were a stumbling block for the entire kingdom. Now, we mustn't imagine that Solomon uh, initially decided that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, become idolatrous. That's not where he started. I'm, not going to, I'm, I'm going to start marrying these women. I'll start. He didn't plan it all out. It just sort of happened a little bit after a little bit. Um, his words at the dedication of the temple and his actions on another occasion indicate where his heart started. Um, he worshiped God alone. He loved God. He had good things to say. He, three books in, in the Old Testament are attributed to Solomon. But Solomon's heart changed incrementally, bit by bit. And I'm sure he had his reasons. Let's see, this one looked cute. I really like this one's personality. This one will seal a political partnership. Uh, as the number of wives grew, though, and as wealth accumulated, his wisdom waned. The change happened slowly, day by day, year after year, until finally he found himself in a very different position in his relationship with God. Now, to use an analogy, imagine that our relationship with God is like a 90-degree angle pointing straight up. Straight up. Sometimes we call it north, but we can, or we call it a vertical relationship, but the, the proper uh, place for our relationship with God is straight up. And if you can move to that slide, that'd be great. Um, but every year, that, sh that angle changed by one degree. It didn't happen all at once. It was just every year, one degree. Now, in the course of Solomon's 40-year reign, his heart's trajectory changed until its inclination was no longer straight up. Bit by bit, day after day, God remained the same, but Solomon's heart moved further and further away until he was building shrines to other gods. Now, it's easy to point fingers at Solomon. I mean, who in their right mind marries a thousand wives and thinks it's a good idea? But when we think about incremental change carefully, we might find that we too are making decisions day by day that are also pulling us slowly away from God. Incrementally, a little bit, bit by bit. We find that we're making decisions that are taking us away. So Solomon worked hard to multiply wealth and wives. What are we working hard at? Is it drawing us closer to God? Solomon celebrated all these things. Are we celebrating what brings us closer or what moves us further away from God? What are we working at? What are we celebrating? In our lives, a one-degree change over the course of a year makes a huge difference on where we end up. And if we're leading a family, or in this case a kingdom, that one degree change affects everything and creates a culture of idolatry. We wonder how we came to the place of idolatry in our family, our organization, our nation, but it's the one degree change that becomes rooted in culture and takes on a life of its own. This is the culture that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, grew up in. And Rehoboam is the one who reigned when the kingdom became divided. Incidentally, I, I had read a book uh, by Cotter uh, called Leading Change and talked about all the different things that you need to do to, to change an organization. You need to create a team, you need to create a vision, you need all those sorts of things. But one of the later things he said is that you have to anchor 
that change in the culture or it will disappear. Now, things can be anchored in culture, uh, either good or bad, but if we continue to do them and we continue to um, celebrate them, then they will become the culture that our family or whatever group that we're leading uh, experiences. So we're going to move on to the circumstances of the divided kingdom. Um, and uh, so first we have a knucklehead son of Solomon named Rehoboam. Uh, he seemed as foolish as his father did wise. Uh, after Solomon died, Rehoboam became king of Judah. He traveled to Shechem in order to also become king of the northern tribes of Israel. There was sort of a natural division between the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. So he was already king of Judah, but he traveled to Shechem to become also the king of the northern tribes. When the Israelites told Rehoboam they would submit to him if only he would lighten their load, Rehoboam did not listen to them, nor listen to his father's advisors, but took the advice from his buddies. Rehoboam answered the northern tribes harshly and split the kingdom. That's the short version. But it turns out that the circumstances of, of the divided kingdom have everything to do with Solomon turning from the Lord. If you've ever started anything, a family, an organization, a school, a branch of government, if you've ever led anything like that, over the long period of time, you know the truth of the words, you reap what you sow. So Solomon led a family and a kingdom, and in his family, he continually adding wealth and wives while moving further and further away from God, he was, in essence, sowing the seeds of idolatry, both in his family and in the kingdom. And so uh, at the end of chapter 11, we learn that uh, King Solomon died after ruling Israel for 40 years. From 1 Kings 12, 13, we learn that Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, his mom was one of the 700 wives of Solomon, but Rehoboam was likely the oldest son. He had a lot of half-brothers and sisters. Rehoboam saw his father work hard to procure wives and wealth, and that's what Solomon celebrated. And that's what Rehoboam believed was important. The seed of idolatry that Solomon had planted in his family was reaped when Rehoboam became king and split the kingdom in two. But that's not all. Solomon's idolatry also impacted his leadership style. And so um, the Bible Project's video on First and Second Kings uh, makes a comment at the end of the section on Solomon that said Solomon actually, at the end of his reign, resembled Pharaoh more than he did a Davidic king. He, he was act, acting more like a Pharaoh would act than a, a king in God's kingdom. And so Rehoboam's grandfather, David, thought the role of a king was to serve the kingdom. So David thought the role of a king was to serve the kingdom. He was there to serve the people. But Solomon turned this idea on its head, and in the end, Solomon did not serve the kingdom. The kingdom served Solomon. The idea of being a servant leader like David was foreign to Rehoboam, but that is exactly the leadership style that God required. And incidentally, it's exactly the leadership style that Jesus advocated. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, he did, not want to come to be, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the Christian leadership style. But because of Solomon's idolatrous leadership 
style, there was also simmering resentment in Israel towards the end of Solomon's reign. And so it's hard for us to know if Rehoboam understood the resentment of the northern tribes felt towards Judah and its king. But the fact that he was traveling to Shechem and the leaders did not travel to Judah indicates that he was making a concession in order to talk to those tribes. It wasn't a given that he would become uh, king over the northern tribes. He, um, Rehoboam should have been king of the northern tribes, but there was some type of resentment that needed to be alleviated. There was some, some peace that needed to be made in order to move forward. The leaders of those tribes complained that Solomon had asked for too much. His rule, while it started out well, had become harsh and unpleasant to the people. This is what they said in 1 Kings 12, 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. A yoke, by the way, is something that is on the neck of oxen. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Now, Rehoboam, to his credit, said, go away, come back in three days, I'll give you an answer. Now, among those who complained to Rehoboam was a man named Jeroboam. Remember, I said they're not brothers, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but um, it's, it's easy to remember them that way. Um, Jeroboam was listed in 1 Kings 11 as one of the adversaries to Solomon. He started out being in charge of Solomon's labor force, and then, um, because of Solomon's idolatry, one of the prophets anointed Jeroboam and said, you are going to be king over the northern tribes. Not the southern tribes, but the northern tribes. And so Jeroboam, getting all excited, uh, probably tried to um, make that happen early, and Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, so Jeroboam ran away to Egypt. Now that Solomon died, Jeroboam returned. He's with the northern tribes when Rehoboam has his, his uh, talk with them and when they're trying to settle all this thing, and so Jeroboam is, is part of the problem here. So these are the circumstances of the divided kingdom. Rehoboam went up to Shechem to claim his throne, people simmering with resentment from Solomon's harsh leadership. They asked Rehoboam to lighten the load. But what do Rehoboam and his friends remember from Solomon's reign? They remember Solomon becoming more and more like Pharaoh, more and more working out of power and might and, and uh, telling people what to do and not asking, uh, not listening to people, but uh, directing them. And so um, that informed the decision that Rehoboam made. Rehoboam asked his father's advisors what to do, and this is what they said. Listen carefully here. This is from 1 Kings 12, 7. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them. When you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Model of servant leadership. So Solomon's advisor said, yeah, Solomon's a little off track towards the end there. What you need to do is you need to be the people's servant. You need to kind of return to this Davidic concept of leadership, move away from the direction you've gone, and move back to servant leadership. Be a servant leader. Stop serving yourself. Serve the people. But to Rehoboam, this advice made no sense at all. What is a servant leader? And probably nervous, insecure, acting in his own self-interest for sure. 1 Kings 12, 14, this is what Rehoboam says. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. 
Who thinks that's brilliant? What a brilliant answer. Um, so that's, that's, where, that's where it was at. And of course, then the northern uh, tribes rebelled. Um, Rehoboam tried to send a, a, the guy in charge of forced labor up there, and they killed him. And, uh, and then Jeroboam sort of became the de facto leader over there. And then Rehoboam assembled 180,000 men, and he was going to uh, fight them. And, but a servant of the Lord said, no. In uh, 1 Kings 12, 22, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So this culture of idolatry that had been created by Solomon, bit by bit, was, uh, it was created by him incrementally walking away from God, had impacted the leadership style, his own, his family's, the future of the kingdom. And so we come to this point where we see the, the nation of Israel is like this giant tree. I mean, to all, all, everyone looking at it goes, oh my gosh, there's, there's like tons of gold coming to this place. There are trade ships here. There are, I mean, just all, it looks like a powerful kingdom, but the roots are rotting. And what's rotting the roots is idolatry, is walking away from God, is not being 90 degrees. So here are the consequences um, what were the consequences of the divided kingdom? The first one was the immediate bad leadership and persistent idolatry of the northern tribes of Israel. Jeroboam became king. Now, this is curious because Jeroboam, when he was anointed, was told um, the reason why these tribes are being taken away from Solomon's son is because of the idolatry. And yet, when Jeroboam became king, he got nervous and he thought, you know, if, if I uh, allow people to go up to Jerusalem and worship as, I, as they should, they're going to eventually return to Judah. They're going to walk away from me, and I'm going to lose the kingdom. And so uh, Jeroboam took a page out of uh, the Old Testament uh, on the Israel's wanderings uh, when, they, when they created the golden calf. And, and so he made two golden calves. And he put them in two very convenient places and said, here are your gods, O Israel. Come and worship them. And that way, the people wouldn't go over to Jerusalem. They can just worship right here in Samaria. But what he did is he institutionalized idolatry in Israel. There was never a recorded good king in Israel. Not one. Israel never had a good king. Judah had eight good kings, and 12 bad kings. I mean, not great, but it's a lot better record than Israel. Never had a good king. What we see in Israel is the prophets come and confronting the kings in Israel. So the prophets are the good guys in general, and the kings are the bad guys in general when it comes to the nation of Israel because of idolatry. The southern tribes of Judah would eventually turn back to God under the leadership of Rehoboam's grandson, Asa, who would rule 20 years later. But even Judah wouldn't have, would have several uh, bad kings. Uh, when the kingdom was divided, both sides became weaker than they were under Solomon. Uh, Judah especially suffered at first. So all of these alliances crumbled when the, uh, when the kingdom became divided. Uh, the, the kingdom was not able to hold the alliances intact. Lots of bad things happened. But one notable one was um, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 14, 
Shishak, the king of, of Egypt, who had formerly been, in fact, Solomon married one of his daughters, but he'd formerly been an ally and there was a, an alliance. Well, that evaporated. And five years after uh, Rehoboam took power, uh, Shishak came in and he basically attacked uh, Judah and he stripped away all of their goodies that they had acquired under Solomon. Some of these goodies under Solomon were like hundreds of gold shields that were mostly decorative, that were put up on the walls, and they were, they were immensely valuable. But uh, Shishak took all of those gold shields, 500 of them, and uh, in response, Rehoboam made, had bronze shields made, and he made people shine them so they look like they're gold. It's almost a, a, a word picture of what took place in the southern kingdom. They had the gold standard and they moved down to bronze. Things got worse. Well, in the end, both kingdoms got taken over by their enemies. Scripture records uh, that the reason Israel and Judah fell was not military, not political, but spiritual. One could say that Solomon reaped what he sowed, as did Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the kings that succeeded them. Uh, but it's also clear that God raises up kingdoms. He makes them fall. And Israel and Judah were divided because of the idolatry, and they fell because of idolatry. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility were working together in this. Israel and Judah fell because God decreed that they would fall. God decreed they would fall because of the people's idolatry. Uh, so it was, it was God in charge, but it was also working together with, with what the people were doing. And the people were moving further and further away from God, so they naturally reaped what they sowed. Uh, a few years ago, our men's group the 33 ser did the 33 series, and one of the speakers said this. He said, um, in our lives, we reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow, and we reap in a different season than we sow. So if uh, you are a younger parent... Um, and you're planting seeds right now, whatever seeds you're planting will grow up and in a different season. You'll see some of the fruit of, of what's taken place, good fruit and bad fruit. And if you're looking back on things at, uh, as your kids are getting older, you'll look back and see the seeds of things that you planted, good things and bad things, and how they've germinated. And that's true of churches. It's true of of different organizations. It was certainly true of the kingdom of Israel. But it's important to remember that what we plant in the ground is going to reap a harvest, and it, we may not reap at the present time. Whatever we do today is going to affect us 10 years from now, and whatever we do today is going to affect those who are around us 10 years from now. It's important what we sow. And this isn't true just of biological families, it's true of how we spiritually invest in other people's lives. However we're relating to other people, those seeds that we sow will be reaped in another season. So when we think of Solomon's legacy, we think of the narrative of, of Kings and Chronicles, the three books attributed to him, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. We remember him building the temple. Those are good seeds that he sowed. But also we remember his wives, his wealth, his idolatry, his foolish son Rehoboam, his oppressive leadership, uh, a divided kingdom. So Solomon planted good seeds, he planted bad seeds, and, and some of them uh, we now, uh, even, even today, we, we read those books of the Bible. 
and the and significant things that Solomon did that were good are still here, but those bad things were really bad, and people experienced bad things for centuries as a result of Solomon's idolatry, which leads us to the question, what seed are we planting? What seeds are we planting? Are we planting good seeds or bad seeds? And what seeds are we unintentionally planting? Um, because of the, possibly the culture of our family, uh, things that we grew up with that we thought were normal. And then if you're looking back on it, you realize, oh, actually, maybe that wasn't normal at all. Uh, maybe there's some, some good things that we're doing, but right alongside them that we're, we're, we're kind of sowing some weeds. We're, we've got a seed mix, and it has good seed, it has weeds in there at the same time. And so um, we, of course, all of us, want to plant the good seed. But we might think that good seed is related to wealth, or related to the right relationship, or related to the right education, or any number of things, related to being a, a good person even. There, there's some things that we can hold in our hearts almost idolatrously that can cause problems, uh, even well-intended things for the future. And then we say, well, what do we do about that? Especially if I'm looking back on things right now and I can't fix it. I can't fix the, the changes I've made uh, as, as, an, as a parent I can't fix or the changes I've made perhaps in this church uh, that, that are, are wrong, um, they're hard to fix. What do I do? Or if I'm a, I'm a, if I'm a, a young parent, I, I know I'm planting some things that are good and bad, and I, know, I, I even know this about myself. So, you know, maybe you have an anger problem or, or any number of things. Maybe, maybe you have a family that was addicted to pornography or whatever, whatever that thing is that, that you're off on, and you want to, you want to go correctly on it but, it, but you keep on bumping up against that lid of sin. And here's where we want to return to um, David, because David... I mean, he's, he put both seeds in the ground. He, he sinned spectacularly. I think way worse than Solomon ever did. He was, I mean, I don't know any story about Solomon murdering his friend to get his wife and things along those lines. I, don't, I haven't read about those sorts of things with Solomon. But the, the difference with Solomon is, uh, is the difference of returning. If we could uh, go to that, um, there we go. So it, if, we, if God is straight up, and we'll use David, for example, and he's off, what David kept on doing is he kept returning. He kept on saying, okay, here's God, here's me, oops, I'm off, sorry. I've messed up, I'm going to return to God. Against you alone have I sinned, O Lord, he says. Um, and then he does it again. And he blows it. And there are consequences. He, and he just, he owns the consequences. And so these are the physical consequences of the stupid decisions I've done. And yet I'm going to return to God because that's the best place I can possibly be. And really, as time goes on, if you're sort of on the front end of things, um, that's what we need to return to again and again. And if we're skiing the back hill, if we're a little older and looking back and saying, these are the things I can't fix, it's still return time. What should Solomon have done after all these things? He should have said, whoa, I have built temples to other gods. They're on these hills over here and married these multiple wives. And, and uh, maybe it's time to tear down these other temples. Years later, Jehoshaphat would do just that. He realized the nation was in a bad spot. 
He, tore, he cut down the Asher poles, tore down the foreign altars. He got rid of all that stuff. He said, we as a nation are not heading spiritually north, but we need to return. And he led the nation back to God. And that's all we're ever asked to do because we, we can't get away from the sin that's within us and, and things that entangle us from family culture, from things that are, are messed up. We can pray that God will, will relieve us of those and we, and we want to and we, we do our best. But at the end of the day, what we're given from God, from David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, is the gift of repentance that leads to life, the ability to return, the ability to go back and true north and, and recalibration, we might call it. We can't keep our car going straight because it keeps on turning, but we can get it recalibrated and it will go straight for a time Then we find out we're messed up again. We get recalibrated again. We keep returning. That's the Christian life. The um, Bible tells us um, if we confess, this is John 1, uh, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so that's our promise today from, uh, from the divided kingdom is, yes, a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. A divided heart, or divided, um, our divided heart leads to God's divided kingdom in our lives. And that can reap bad physical consequences. But the good news is we can confess, return through Jesus Christ and be healed and completely forgiven. We don't need to live in shame and fear and anything else that goes with that. We're completely forgiven. We're restored. And we know at the end of our days that God will lift up our heads and we'll be perfectly clean. So, uh, this is, uh, this is the divided kingdom. Um, I, I want you to know that uh, we have some homework today. Um, so if we go to uh, um, 1 Kings 13 through 22, if you're a reader, you'd like to read through that section, it will be helpful for you. Uh, this next Sunday, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from this series. We're going to uh, go on to uh, kind of share what's taking place with a place to gather. And we'll have a lunch in. I encourage you to come. It'll be a really neat time. And then uh, after that, we'll be talking about uh, the kings and the prophets. So uh, please bow your heads with me. We'll, uh, Father, thank you for your word. It is uh, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, Lord, your word is life. Um, we are so thankful uh, for the hope that we have. Um, I know that there are some of us that have struggled with um, family issues, with um, children, with parents, with all sorts of things. And some of these things don't seem like they're easy to resolve right now. But God, help us to return to true north, whatever our circumstances, whatever we're struggling with. Help our greatest affections to be in you, Lord, and help us to trust you to clean up everything else. God, we thank you uh, for the hope that we have in Christ, uh, that he ultimately is the fulfillment of, of the promises of David. He is the servant leader. He is the providing the culture that we want to experience. God, help us to do that through your spirit. Amen.